It's Monday, July 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Maker. Gentlemen, happy Monday. Happy, happy Monday. Monday. It is a happy Monday because the heat wave has broken. The heat wave broken. Snapped. The pre- For now, don't jinx it. We got uh, Friday the 13th coming up here. Uh, I probably just blew it. All right, we are going to talk video gaming. We're going to talk Qualcomm, 3D printing, and we're going to talk apparel stocks, and we're going to do it all via the Fool mailbag. You can always drop us an email, radio at fool.com. And uh, everything we're going to talk about today, emails from our, our dozens of listeners. From Kyle James in South Carolina, he writes, You've probably seen the news recently that Vivendi is looking to sell their 61% stake in Activision Blizzard. As a buy-and-hold type of guy, this seems like great long-term news because it dumps a lot of uncertainty that Vivendi creates around Activision Blizzard. Do you have thoughts about that or possibly who might be interested in buying that stake in the company? One interesting rumor I heard was Disney would be the perfect company. I remember a show a few weeks a few weeks back, when you were talking about their digital media division being the weakness in the company, it would seem that Activision Blizzard would be a perfect fit for this. Jason, I'll start with you. What do you think of this? Well, first off, let me just applaud Kyle. I mean, South Carolina. Yeah. I love it. I grew up in South Carolina, went to college in South Carolina. Uh, I know we moved up here from Georgia, but still plenty of my heart left down there in South Carolina. But, um, yeah, in regard to Activision Blizzard, this is pretty interesting news. I mean, we've been following Activision Blizzard here in some shape or form for a lot of years. And uh, back uh, back when, when Activision and Vivendi merged together. That's how the Activision Blizzard relationship came to be. And it was essentially Activision looking to get a hold of that Vivendi model with World of Warcraft. They did a great job of creating that that online uh, MMORPG uh, model game, which utilizes the, the advantages of digital distribution and uh, getting a lot of gamers into one community. And I think that really Activision decided, instead of trying to build it, why don't they become uh, part of that family with Vivendi and World of Warcraft and, and help develop uh, Call of Duty around it, which is what they've done now. So Call of Duty now with the Call of Duty Elite model, uh, building uh, subscriptions there, uh, creating that same type of environment as they have with Battle.net. I like the fact that this is at least being thrown out there because I do – I don't know that it really is holding back the stock price per se. I mean, the the stock has been flat for a long time and – and uh, you know, I think that really it's one of those companies that is judged on what it hasn't done yet because video games are so so quick to kind of cycle through, and and it is you know a lot of its success is based on just those two franchises. Uh, but I do like this uh, this this news getting out there. I think that if we can get uh, the company itself, just Activision Blizzard, to focus solely on on, on its video game specialties, uh, they might have a chance to to really do some neat things. As far as who's going to buy the company, it's really hard to say. I've seen some uh, things kicked out about Microsoft and I think uh, possibly even Tencent, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yowza. Yeah, <laughs> and, and even all to, all the way to private equity. Uh, so it, it's it's all up in the air there. I know uh, Kyle mentioned Disney, which that very well could happen. I don't know that that would. It's not really up Disney's alley, I think, video games. I mean, Activision Blizzard is trying to take that step into entertainment uh, there's been talk of a World of Warcraft movie utilizing 3D technology mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, computerized graphics. I think they have that. Like that it's, but... it's called the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's neat to see. I like seeing it kicked out there. I think it could certainly uh, propel Activision Blizzard to, to new heights to kind of be on their own. Joe, what do you think? I've got a lot to say here. One, I'm bitter that South Carolina has passed Georgia in peach production. <laughs> it's made it very difficult to find Georgia peaches anywhere in the D.C. area. But Georgia I'm, pecans are still 
number one. Number one. Yep. Um, beyond that, I think Jason made a lot of good points. I, I agree that these guys, Activision, may not be a good fit for Disney in the sense that when I think Activision, I think Blockbusters, which is similar to Disney, but they're trying to switch more towards a membership approach. They've got that with World of Warcraft, but they'd really like to move away from you know the traditional blockbuster model, and it's because your earnings quality in that realm is pretty low. Uh, when you have to keep relying on coming up with big hits, that's that can be really messy because when you don't actually connect on a pitch, you end up uh, suffering pretty badly, whereas the membership model is very nice. So I, I don't think you're going to see them end up in Disney's arms. Also, I'm not sure that you know, Call of Duty is necessarily like a Disney franchise. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think they want to get behind that one. Yeah, but, but I like the spirit of the question. Yeah, it's a smart absolutely. one. Well, I, I mean... L- to be fair, we've seen Disney make these sort of big, splashy purchases before. We saw it with Pixar. We saw it with uh, Marvel. And, uh, you know, Pixar is is obviously animated films, that sort of thing. Marvel, I guess, with the Avengers and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess I mean, that's, uh, that's one step closer to yeah. Call of Duty. And, and, and I think that's kind of where I fell on that was. That's where I could see the question coming from. And, and like Joe said, it is a smart question. It makes sense because getting in that Disney umbrella, Disney's really good about bringing – you know, powerful, powerful uh, franchises or companies and like that, and letting them basically run and do their own thing, which is what they've done with Pixar. And Pixar has obviously just knocked it out of the park time and time again. Uh, but, but with that said, I still I'm not quite sure I see that as a fit. Yeah, I mean, another scenario is the shares just end up floating, so they end yeah. up selling these out to the public markets or spinning them off to shareholders. And I think there's a really good chance that could happen. I mean, remember Bobby Kotick's been running for this company, running Activision for like 20 years now, so he's probably in no rush to give up his cushy gig. Yeah, and it's not an unattractive situation you're in. I mean, you get a company that has $3.5 billion in cash on the balance sheet with no debt. And I mean, it's a free cash flow machine. It generated about $900 million in free cash flow last year alone, which uh, is not insignificant. Email from Cody Terrell. He writes, I work for Markel, and it was great to hear you guys yeah, mention Cody. it. Yeah, <laughs> Cody. Love Markel. Great to hear you guys mention it back when you went to Omaha for the Berkshire meeting. I bought shares of Qualcomm in April, and unfortunately, I watched it fall all during May. How strong do you think this is in the next six months uh, or the long term? Should it recover with the market, or do you think it can act independently? Uh, Joe, a few different directions you can take it in there. Would yeah. Well, I have nothing critical about South Carolina for this question, but I do love the idea of someone who works at Markel, which is this you know conservative um, insurance company based out of Richmond, investing in Qualcomm. They are kind of different businesses. Uh, over the long term, I think Qualcomm's in a great place. Over the short term, things will be bumpy. But when you look at the model, essentially, these guys invented 3G. And because of that, they're able to charge huge royalties on every 3G device sold. So that's your iPhone, that's your iPad, that's anything Nokia makes. You go down the whole list, and they make about 3% or so on each of these phones or tablets sold. Well, that's great, great cash flow coming in. Now, the other side of the business is chips. And basically, they're like the Intel for mobile. They're not not quite as powerful as Intel is. And Intel actually wants to be the Intel of mobile, too. There's a lot of competition, but... By and large, they're in a great competitive position in a market that's still surging long runway. Uh, Qualcomm did about 30% top-line growth last quarter and sells for 20 times earnings. So, you know, rough cutting, that's pretty attractive. It sounds like when you describe Qualcomm's business that way, it sounds like, you know, looking at these two halves, that one is... Is it fair to say one is far more secure or has a much bigger moat than the other? I mean, it seems like that... Um, you know that the, the chip side of the business 
I mean, you're, you're right. Intel it's a little wants... more commodity-like. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tough to it's tough to stay ahead there, and there's a lot of competition. I think you're going to see, you know, winners and losers shake out over a period of years on that side. But on the IP side, they have a fortress. They also have a lot of key essential patents for 4G or LTE, and they don't get as much on those phones as they do on 3G phones. But they're still going to be making a lot on that too. So that side of the business is going to be paying dividends for a long time. Email from Ryan Weicker in Philadelphia. He writes, 3D printing has come up on your show from time to time. And it was your interview with David Gardner last summer that got me looking at 3D printing companies and their disruptive possibilities. Uh, Jason, uh, Ryan included in his email um, a link to an article from the University of Pennsylvania about how researchers at Penn are using 3D printing to create vascular networks out of sugar as a way to improve living tissues. There was actually a, a, about a two-minute video that I watched in the article, and it was just sort of mind-blowing. <laughs> the, it, it really sort of brought home uh, visually what 3D printing can be, what the possibilities are. And it sort of, you know, I think, probably got Ryan thinking. It certainly got me thinking, yes, there's a benefit to society to be had here. It also seems like there would be a huge benefit for companies like Stratasys, 3D System Corp., that sort of thing is that I mean is that fair to say? I think that's very uh, very fair to say. And you know, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles for any investor to get over in regard to three D printing companies is to actually you know try to wrap your head around what the technology actually does, how it works. There's another video where it shows three uh, D system uh, making chainmail, which is just you know it's very intricate woven chainmail. It's just it's it's fascinating to watch. And so I think that when you look at the the range of products that this stuff can make, everywhere from hip replacements. To, to airplane parts and everything in between, uh, it, it's it's exciting to think about what the implications are down the road here, especially when we have so much of our manufacturing that is being uh, done overseas at this point. Uh, it also opens opens up a lot of manufacturing potential just back to consumers, and I think that's what 3D Systems really focuses on uh, versus Stratasys, which is more of a uh, industrial-style play. But both companies we have in our foolish universe, Stratasys and 3D Systems, I, I like both of them a lot. It's really fun to follow, and, uh, and I think that investors would be wise to pay attention to it. Joe, what do you think? I think it's really interesting, not the least reason because I'd love some chain mail, and I'd, <laughs> I'd love to be able to make that at home. Um, I, I do think it's a really interesting space. Like most people, as Jason's saying, I have a tough time wrapping my head around where it's going. I think that you know, when you think about competitive threats, I wouldn't just think about who could make money there, but who could get hurt. And people who might get hurt are manufacturers of kind of low-spec goods that can be made easily by a machine like this. So a nail, for example, just to use the most basic example, but items like that that are pretty commoditized, and it's tough enough to compete now, but, you know, you imagine a imagine a future where we can make nails at home. Um in a situation like that, you would see companies that make those items have a really tough time competing. and Sort of that creative destruction thing, I guess. The neat thing about it is, as these as investments, though, is you look at them and they, they do have that sort of recurring revenue model and that not only do they make the printers that print these things, but they also sell the, the materials that are used to print. Uh, so those those are just the consumables that you know, have to sell over and over and over again. So they're very attractive as, as investments from that perspective. Again, though, I, I do think for any investor that's considering it, it, what I did is I really you know went in there and read up on it to try to get a better idea of what exactly this is about. Because when you first think of it, it's just it's really hard hard to get your head around. What it. do you think is the you know sort of the big opportunity 
for companies like this, whether it's a 3D systems or a Stratasys, is it more in the medical, uh, you know, sort of uh, biotech universe? Is it is it more in devices? Is it more in, or is, to Joe's point, is it in just everyday households, things like nails? It could be both. I mean, there could be some mass, some mass effects there, but the real claim to fame is more personalized, specialized, intricate style goods where you know, it, it could be anything, uh, but but I think that really we could probably liken it to something like a, a joint replacement or something like that that's very specific to an individual. And so I do feel like this is technology that would be very beneficial to something like the medical industry, uh, very specialized industries that need specialized, uh, you know, particular uh, personalized uh, parts. And so, yeah. so I think that's where the first most, most yeah, uh, a good example of that, just to help you visualize. So imagine you go to the dentist and you need to get some yeah. crowns done or something to that effect. Well, instead of you get those done and they make a little model that they have to get sent away for and it takes two weeks to come back, imagine at the dentist's office, you come in, you get measured, and they make it right there on the spot. So They don't have to push the goop up in there to make the mold of your teeth anymore. Yeah, I mean, it still probably hurts and it's a <laughs> terrible experience, but it's over faster. But hey, it's 3D. It's kind of cool. Uh, Joe, it just sounds like your your dream of having you know making your own chainmail at home is. Uh, I think we're farther away from that. I'm sorry. Sadly, uh, finally from David and Patrick in Charlotte, North Carolina, we've been out of college for one year and listen to Market Foolery every day, giving us more knowledge than four years of college. Boy, I don't now, know where'd you go to school. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they didn't say where they went to school, but that's that's a slap in the face of some higher education. <laughs> uh, our question is about <laughs> Nike. Uh, we recently saw the stock down more than 10% on an earnings miss. In our opinion, this seemed like a classic overreaction to a business with a superior global reach, even compared to Tang, uh, and a world-renowned brand in an industry with a significant moat combined with a much cheaper valuation compared to Under Armour or Lululemon. Other than price inflations of their inputs, what are the long-term threats here? That's a, I mean, that's a great question uh, and a, I think a great way of thinking about companies in terms of, okay, what, what, are, what are the obvious threats and then what are the long-term threats? Yeah, I got to say, if you're fresh out of college and looking at it from that perspective, you are wise beyond your years. Yes. Because I think that probably all three of us in the room would agree that it was a classic overreaction to a very staid, reputable, and solid business. I mean, Nike is a brand that uh, just, you know, it's known the world over. It's it's uh, just done tremendously well for for not only us as an investment, but just <laughs> over general time itself. As it's just a it's just a provider of athletic goods for everyone everywhere. And I think that when you look at uh, these types of of short term reactions, yes, there are concerns about production costs, and they are hurting the gross margin line there. Uh, but you have to look at Nike as a long term player here in in really a market that'll never go away in athletic apparel. Uh, Under Armour, great company, terrific founder there in Kevin Plank. Lululemon, I'm I'm not quite as behind, but I don't. You're do wearing yoga the yoga either, pants, so <laughs> hey, yoga pants. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, I do think Nike is something that uh, is a, is an excellent long term holding, and w- and when you want to buy something like Nike, you need to take advantage of these kinds of drops. Joe, you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. I do think it's a nice buying opportunity. And just kind of stepping back and looking at the big long-term competitive landscape, Nike's biggest challenge is just going to be staying fresh so that they don't end up being the Chuck Taylors of, you know, of basketball shoes and all the things they're into right now. And it's easier said than done. Uh, Under Armour came along, and I would say Under Armour has, you know, more street cred. And to me, it seems like a fresher brand that people are more excited about than Nike, even though Nike is bigger. 
um, Under Armour obviously getting a lot of traction there. But I think Nike's going to struggle to maintain that lead as being fresh. And there's always this eternal battle when you have a fashion brand like this where you want to monetize it, but you also want to stay cool. So if you sell too many Nike-branded T-shirts, at some point you're diluting the brand and people stop getting enthused about buying your stuff and they don't want to pay up for it. So they really just have to kind of keep watching that balance and not chase profits by selling lower-end gear. And I think so long as they do that, you know, that portends well. Well, and as the old guy in the room, I can I can speak to that uh, in this regard. Um, when I was a kid, uh, and basketball is my favorite sport, uh, the by far the most popular sneaker was Converse. Mm-hmm. And the three biggest stars in the NBA back in the late, you know, in, in 1980 – Yes, I'm dating myself. Uh, but the three biggest stars were Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Dr. J, Julius Irving. And all three of them were Converse guys. And it was years later that uh, a young guy by the name of Michael Jordan picked up a pair of Nikes. And, and so, I mean, I, I, Joe, I think that that speaks to your, uh, your laying out of the challenge in front of Nike. Because, you know, we've seen, we've seen it play out before. Just because you're on top in the sneaker world doesn't mean you stay on top. Yeah, well, another risk in this space is when you staple your name to individual athletes, sometimes that can backfire on you, and I think Tiger Woods would be the poster boy of that, although I'm still long-term bullish on Tiger. (laughs) Uh, But there are risks with that, and, you know, sometimes you strike gold with a Michael Jordan. I mean, signing Jordan to have a swoosh on his shoes was probably the single best business move, maybe of, you know, that generation. Uh, But you don't have too many hits like that, and you're going to have other people coming along trying to fight for the same business. Yeah, I mean, I would would say just to that point, I I was a little bit surprised that Tiger Woods didn't have more of a negative effect on the Nike brand. I mean, he, let's face it, he got screwed up pretty badly. Um, And I I just was surprised to see that it didn't have as bad of an effect. So I do think that that's a testament, at least to, to, you know, how the Nike brand resonates with consumers in general. And, And many times they will just look past that and even just... You know, at, uh, I was at a congressional here just a couple of weeks ago watching the golf tournament. Man, that guy's just as popular as ever, even after what he did. So, you know, that I think very quickly consumers will forgive and forget, especially when uh, you got a brand like Nike coming out with something cool and fresh every every couple of months. We've got the Olympics coming up, uh, summer games coming up in just a couple of weeks. I have to believe that companies like Nike and Under Armour, you know, have got their athletes that they're rooting for. But just in terms of viewing the Summer Olympics, do you have? An event that you're particularly interested in that you're that you're sort of circled on the calendar. You're like, I definitely want to watch this. So I guess they're going to come up with golf eventually. Twenty sixteen. I don't know that I would really care about that. Yeah. I, I am a golfer through and through, but I grew up swimming. I love uh, watching competitive swimming. To me, that's just uh, you know, it's great exercise. I think it's fun yeah. to watch. It's intense. I think Phelps really brought it home last uh, last Olympics. I'll be be excited to watch that again this year. Joe, what about you? Yeah, USA basketball is always a, a crowd pleaser for me. And I ran track in high school, so the one through four hundred meter on the track are pretty dear to me. Wow! So you've got not just track, you've got your specific events you care about. Yeah. All right, I'm with Jason on the swimming. I, uh, you know, got swimmers at home, so I definitely love to watch it. All right, Jason Moser, Joe Mager, guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Forward. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.